The Destiny Foundation presents Rabbi Beryl Wine's Travels Through Jewish History. This, the 80th tape in the series, is entitled, The State of Israel, delivered April 7, 1987. We hope you enjoy. Tonight's uh, lecture concerns itself with the birth of the State of Israel, which is... Uh, historically uh, one of the most remarkable events not only in Jewish history but in world history however because of the fact that we are uh, relatively speaking historically speaking so close to the event it is really hard to assess it historically and it's hard to really come to any true appreciation of the event Uh, the birth of the state of Israel is not merely an historic event as all events in Jewish history, it has uh, great religious overtones, which have not yet clearly been settled. And it also has uh, enormous psychological and sociological overtones, uh, some of which we are beginning to experience, but most of which I feel are yet to be heard from. And therefore, it's very, very difficult even for a great orator such as me, to put this matter into some sort of historic perspective. And probably a, a lecture given on the birth of the State of Israel 50 years from now or 100 years from now, which I hope I'll be able to deliver then, uh, would have uh, more meaning and would be able to be seen uh, as a more... Uh, accurate portrayal of the event but uh, limited uh, as I am with all of the uh, caveats that I have just enumerated I uh, want to uh, A. tell you the facts as we know them and B. uh, some sort of an assessment regarding the matter I always have the feeling I I have uh, whenever I I talk in the yeshiva about uh, the birth of the state of Israel or about the Six-Day War or about any of the events uh, that mean so much in current Jewish history, I have a strange feeling because the audience that I address there, uh, none of them were born and none of them were alive when these facts occurred. So when you speak to young people about uh, Jerusalem or about the, the Kotel Amaravi, the Western Wall, or you speak to them about a Jewish state, and certainly, you know, there's a Jewish state, and there's we have the Kotel, and we're in Jerusalem, and it's like, you know, it's like the, like the Mets won the pennant last year. I mean, we're deserving of all of that. I remember when I was a child growing up in my father's home that uh, we used to get uh, letters from Israel, from our relatives, from my father's family who lived there, and then it was Palestine, and you would get a letter from Palestine and the stamp, the postage stamp on it uh, had a picture of the Mosque of Omar on the stamp because the British were always even-handed in these matters it had a picture of the Mosque of Omar on the stamp and it had the three languages Palestine in, uh, in Hebrew and Palestine in English and Palestine in Arabic in our home we treated the stamp with reverence because after 1800 years of not having a stamp 
So even a stamp that you have to share with the English and with the Arabs, and a stamp that had the picture of the Mosque of Omar on it, but it still was an achievement that, that, it w that there was such a stamp. And that's really the, the, the historic direction, the historic dimension of the event. I don't think that you can see it any other way. Religiously, I am not, uh, I'm not equipped to comment on it. I, uh, there are Jews who feel that religiously it was a negative event. There are Jews who feel that it was an extremely positive event. I think the vast majority of Jews don't know what they feel re religiously about the event. I told a joke over in Shul on Shabbos that, uh, that uh, somebody told me last week that the reason that in the, in the Satmar community it takes so long to read the Megillah is because they make noise not only when it says Haman but when it says Medina as well. But there is a significant section of pious Jews who uh, who look with askance at uh, at the Zionist state and at its creation, and who do not see in it a positive religious development. There is a significant section that sees in it the religious event of the past uh, centuries, and it's hard to sort the matter out. God has not given us any uh, great insight into the matter. It's very confused. God gave us a state run by people who, uh, in Jewish tradition, to a great extent, were strangers to the tradition, if not enemies to the tradition. And that made it very hard for traditional Jews to, to find the state palatable. On the other hand, uh, there is no way of thinking about the land of Israel and the people of Israel without the religion of Israel. And uh, just to put it into, again, a perspective, I always repeat the vignette. Ben-Gurion quotes it in his memoirs here, Israel, A Personal History by David Ben-Gurion which, by the way, is a book that is absolutely fascinating, and he made out of it something that is drier than, uh, than wasa bread, if that is possible. I don't, I don't know what, you know, I'm not a book critic, but I don't know, but there's something missing, you know, it can't be, it's just... And anyway, he, this, he writes that when they formed the Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel, in May 1948, May 14th, 1948, so uh, uh, as you can imagine, it was not an easy document to author, and they were not blessed with Thomas Jefferson, who knew how to write a Declaration of Independence, who, who, had, uh, who had some sort of inspiration. I mean, I feel if you read the Declaration of Independence of the United States, it really says what the United States is all about. And it has said that for 200 years, which is a remarkable document. And it says it beautifully. I mean, the phraseology of it, the pursuit of happiness, all men are created equal. There are certain inalienable rights given to man by a just creator. I mean, it says, it says all of the ideals of the United States are repeated in the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence of the State of Israel is, of, again, a very dry document. It does. It is not Isaiah. It is not even Abba Eben. But there was a tremendous dispute regarding the document. 
because the document does not contain the name of God. And you had, on one hand, socialists, atheists, communists. Everybody had to sign this document. This is one of the, uh, the great miracles is that the document was signed wall to wall by a, uh, from uh, Mayor Wilner, who was the head of the Communist Party in Israel. And the Communist Party in Israel, unfortunately, has a very long record of, uh, of being uh, traitorous, I think is the kindest word I can use. Uh, all the way, uh, the head of the Aguda, the brother of the Gera Rebbe, brother-in-law of the Gera Rebbe, and you had, you had all sorts of Jews sign it. So how do you make a document that is so powerful that everybody can sign it? So the way to do it is to make it almost meaningless. Because it, if it states too much, or if it states it too forcefully or too well, so then there will be two, there will be uh, dissenters. So they watered it and watered it and watered it, and they came to the part having to do with whether the name of God should be mentioned. So there they ran into problems because there the religious uh, Jews, uh, Rabbi uh, Levine, Rabbi Fishman, uh, the representatives of the National Religious Party, and other Jews, not just the official religious Jews, all said, how can you have a declaration of the Jewish state after 1900 years that does not mention the name of God? And you had... Uh, communists and socialists and atheists on the other side who said, you know, we've been fighting for a hundred years to get rid of this clericalism, this medieval uh, oppression upon us. And now that we're the ones that are making the state and we're the majority, all of a sudden we're going to revert back. So uh, Ben-Gurion, who uh, was the consummate politician, I think probably the greatest politician the Jewish people had in the last century, a man who did what he had to do and then asked questions later, and uh, a very pragmatic person, very, an, ide an idealist, but a very pragmatic person. He never was hung up on, on these types of issues, and whose sole uh, purpose in life, he felt, was the formation and the creation of the Jewish state, and nothing was going to stand in his way. So Ben-Gurion uh, made a committee uh, to negotiate this matter, and they came up with a uh, an ambiguous phrase, "Mitoch uh, bitachon Yisrael," with faith in the Rock of Israel. So, the Rock of Israel it can be uh, whatever rock you want it to be, right? So, the religious insisted that that was insufficient because of its ambiguity. So they wanted it to read, he brings it in his memoirs, they wanted it to read Sur Yisrael of the Goalol with faith in the rock of Israel and its redeemer. Its redeemer that, you know, that, that pretty much, it doesn't say God because you couldn't say God because then Mayor Wilner wouldn't sign it. But, you know, it alludes to it. And the other one said they want to take out Sur Yisrael completely. We don't need the, the rock of Israel because, you know, Israel has plenty of rocks without this rock. And that was the issue. And this, they were going to declare the state 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Friday afternoon. The British left 
and it was Erev Shabbos, and they weren't going to declare the state on Shabbos. The British mandate was over at midnight, and they couldn't, couldn't straighten out this passage. He had a committee of four, and finally they left it alone. I mean, that was the compromise. It was written, So Ben-Gurion alludes in his notes that the agreement was to add the word Vigo'alo and its redeemer. But in the final draft, somehow the word got lost. And it just said, with faith in the rock of Israel. So, as uh, one of the delegates remarked, the rock of Israel could be Marx as well. And everybody signed it, giving its own interpretation. Now, that's a very small vignette, a very petty vignette. What has that got to do? But that, to me, I mean, that's the problem for ab initio. And that problem has not been settled and may not be settled for hundreds of years yet. I think that that's probably the messianic task that lies before us, is simply what direction, what soul, what purpose that will the Jewish state have? What is its reason for existence? How shall it be a light unto the nations? What shall it represent? Because I think all Jews are agreed one way or another that just to be another Lebanon or to be another Tanzania or Ghana, it really is not worth the effort. For that, we can all stay in Miami Beach. And this uh, problem is an ongoing problem that shows no sign of solution, at least uh, currently. But that fermentation of the struggle is itself maybe a healthy thing because it forces us as Jews to look at many hard issues and to look at other Jews and to look at, at history and at destiny and to try and develop it, to try and take it in our own hands. If the state would be perfect religiously, economically, socially, etc., nobody would do anything, and then it would certainly lose its perfection overnight. In this way, because it is so imperfect and requires so much work, uh, I once heard from a great man that uh, if, God forbid, a parent has a child that is ill or a child that needs help or needs treatments, uh, as uh, God forbid it happens, it forces the parent to be a better parent. Well, that's a heck of a way to look at life, right? But the, uh, the idea behind it is certainly true. It forces us to... You know, if, if the child has to go for a treatment, has to go to the doctor, so then the person takes off from business and the child goes. If he has a normal child, right, and the child says, you know, come to my play or come to or help me with the homework or something, he says, I'm sorry, I'm busy. Can't leave the business. So God gave us a child that needs constant care, needs continual treatment always in problems and because of that therefore the Jewish people are perhaps more concerned more troubled and also more creative than they would otherwise be I have a feeling that uh, the entire uh, Chuva movement which exists the educational system in Israel generally uh, the economic system which is the wonder of all wonders the, uh, the, the technological development of a country, everything is simply because of the fact that, uh, that we're a basket case to start with. And uh, 
as, as the Israelis themselves were wont to comment at the beginning of the state that uh, we have a great general that helps us win the war. The general is General Olive Bet, which stands for Ein Breira. We have no choice. If you have no choice, you'd be surprised what you can do. As long as you think that you have choices, so you'd be surprised how ineffectual we can be. The uh, events that led up to the state, the partition plan, the beginning of the Arab War, which began already in December 1947, the retaliation of first of the Irgun and the Stern Gang, and then later of the Haganah itself, all came to a head in the spring of 1948, when it became apparent that England was going to leave, and was going to leave a chaotic mess, and that no one was going to be in charge, and that therefore uh, the Jews would have to fend for themselves. It also became very apparent that the Arab countries that surrounded Israel in fully intended to invade Palestine, and fully intended to destroy the Jewish population there and that therefore within uh, three years of the Holocaust in Europe uh, the Jewish people faced a second uh, and in many ways even a more frightening Holocaust because the destruction of the Jewish issue in Palestine in 1948 would have been such a blow coming upon the blow of Hitler's uh, extermination of Jews in the Second World War that the Jewish people would have been prostrate the uh, Jews in Palestine uh, took up the struggle with a great deal of heroism and a great deal of Israeli chutzpah and a great deal of help from the Jews outside. Uh, Jewish servicemen who served in the European theater came and served with the uh, Jewish forces. Jewish businessmen here in the United States uh, arranged to bring weapons illegally to Israel. Many of them sat in jail for so doing, for violating the neutrality and embargo laws. Uh, Jewish money was raised clandestinely. You could not deduct it from your taxes. And uh, members of the Jewish agency came to the United States and had conducted such meetings and demanded that the Jews stand up. There was a sense of urgency, of terrible, terrible urgency, that it just could not fail, no matter what. And the Jews were not uh, immediately successful in every, uh, in every uh, struggle. The uh, week before the state was proclaimed, the uh, famous Etzion block of four kibbutzim, which were south of Bethlehem and north of Hebron, those four kibbutzim fell to the local militia and to the Jordanian army and almost all the males in the kibbutzim were killed and a great many of their bodies mutilated. Uh, the loss of Kfar Etzion, which was the leading kibbutz, there were three, there were three religious kibbutzim and one uh, kibbutz of the uh, Shomer HaTzair, those four kibbutzim fell, Masuot uh, Yitzchak, uh, when those kibbutzim fell, it was a tremendous, tremendous, not only military defeat, but a psychological defeat. And the Jews uh, were guilty of, uh, I imagine, of behaving too Jewishly. Think of the famous story of the 35. I mean, you're talking about such small numbers. They tried to reinforce this kibbutz 
which was fighting against hundreds and thousands of Arabs, they tried to reinforce him with 35 men from the Haganah, the Lamed Hay, as though the 35 would have made the difference. But the 35 were bringing ammunition, and it was an additional 35 defenders. And they sent them forth from Jerusalem in the dead of night to take an old desert uh, shepherd's path to reach the Kibbutzim, because the main road was completely closed to any Jewish traffic. And on the way there, they were seen by an old Arab villager. And they caught the old Arab villager. And they debated among themselves whether they should kill him or not. And he swore to them that he would not reveal that he saw them. And they believed him, and they released him, and he naturally ran to the village and said that there are 35 Jewish soldiers in the hills, and they were caught and hacked to death. Wherever you go in Israel today, in almost every major community, you find a road or a plaza or a square called Nativa Lamed Hay, the road of the 35. Wherever you see the Lamed Hay, that's those 35 boys that tried to reinforce Etzion, and uh, because of their inability to kill a person who was a potentially innocent victim, uh, paid for it with their lives how that puts us hard to the terrible moral questions of war, right? In perfect hindsight, we can say, well, perhaps they should have killed him. But if they would have killed him, they would never have known whether they were justified in killing him. And that's the terrible part about war, is that even the most just of wars uh, carries with it unjust acts. So the Etzion block fell, and it fell on May 13th, the day before the proclamation of the state. I remember uh, I was always an avid news listener, and even though then I was uh, barely a teenager, I remember uh, Lowell Thomas broadcasting the news. And uh, Lowell Thomas was, a, uh, was always a romanticist for the Arabs. He... Uh, he was un still under the spell of Lawrence of Arabia. And uh, almost the, uh, the hidden glee in his voice. And when at that time the Jews were driven out of the old city of Jerusalem, which also was defended only by a few hundred members of the Haganah, and the Jordanian army fought them and uh, trapped them and forced them to surrender, it took the civilians into prison, into Jordan. They were prisoners for almost uh, a year before the International Red Cross repatriated them. There were 42 Jewish synagogues in the old city, all of which were destroyed. Uh, there's a marvelous book of pictures called A Will to Survive by an Englishman, John Phillips, who was a... Uh, correspondent for Life magazine and a photographer for Life magazine, and who filmed the Arab destruction of the Jewish quarter and he came back and they, he, he was so enamored of Israel that he stayed in Israel and he became an Israeli citizen and in 1967 he went back to take the same pictures over again I mean that's the book it's the picture 1948 and the picture 1967 and he also traced I think 52 or 55 of the people that were taken in to prison in Jordan because there was a collective picture that the Jordanians took and he took the faces from the collective picture and he traced them 20 years later. 
And that's, that's what the book is about. It's a marvelous, marvelous book. Fascinating book. But you see there, you see Arabs running with uh, Sifre Torah, with Perochusen, with uh, the loot. The old city was destroyed. The synagogue of the Ramban, which he had purchased in the year 1270, was razed to the ground. The great synagogue of Rabbi Churva, the Churva Shul of Rabbi Chosid, was made into a uh, way station for donkeys and finally collapsed. And even today it has not yet been rebuilt. Uh, all of the great uh, houses of learning uh, that were so infested with Jewish life and Jewish warmth, all of that fell. And that was also a tremendous psychological blow. But the thing that I remember the most was that Friday evening walking to shul after you heard the declaration of the of independence of the state of Israel and you could hear in the background the Egyptian bombers bombing Tel Aviv because they came over immediately that night and the Israeli Air Force then did not even have one Piper Cub within a month they would have two Piper Cubs as the airplane later in the war they would obtain Messerschmitt planes it's ironic that the Israeli Air Force in the first uh, war of independence was composed mainly of German Messerschmitts which they smuggled from Europe and you could hear the the bombs in the background exploding and here on that day the five major Arab armies invaded the army of Lebanon, the army of Syria, the army of Jordan, the army of Iraq and the army of Egypt Saudi Arabia sends a token brigade as it always does and uh, facing them was literally this handful of people. Ben Gurion writes here in his memoirs that they had 35,000 people mobilized for the army against an Arab forces that then approximated 150,000. And the Israelis uh, possessed six tanks which they had stolen from the British, or British deserters brought them to the Israeli to the Israeli lines. And the Arabs, especially the Arab Legion, which was a British-trained and British-officered army, was the best army in the Middle East. It was commanded by an Englishman, John E. Glubb, who was uh, known to the Arabs and to the world as Glubb Pasha. If you want to read an interesting book, again, how it looks from the other side. Uh, Glubb wrote that he was fired by King Hussein and sent home uh, to England as a reward for all of his years of service a little like being the, uh, the president of CBS uh, but he at least got money right? He, they just send them home so he wrote a book called A Soldier Among the Arabs which recounts his twenty years as the officer in the Arab Legion describes the siege of Jerusalem, the battle of Latrun, all the battles that we are accustomed to reading so to speak, from our side, this is the other side of the coin. How it felt, how it, uh, how it looked, what their goals and objectives were. An absolutely fascinating book. And they had a great army, and they, and they took over the old city of Jerusalem, and they took over the entire area around Jerusalem. And here, uh, Jerusalem had been under siege for months already, the road to Jerusalem was cut 
It was cut in two places at Latrun and at Sharagai, and there was no way from to get from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And the Jewish people uh, rejoiced, but they shuddered, absolutely shuddered, because no one knew how, what was going to happen. But everybody knew that it was a momentous time. I remember at the davening and shul that Friday night, it was, uh, I don't remember a Yom Kippur. And these were plain Jews. I'm not talking, you know, I remember the yeshiva Saturday night. There was a mishmer that we were, that I always used to go to the mishmer Saturday night, and the rabbeim were there to learn. It was just, it, it, everybody felt that it was a historic moment. In retrospect, you can look back, you can say whatever you want, you know, you can interpret, but those who lived through it, I had a Rebbe in the yeshiva who was not, could never be accused of being a Zionist. Not under any circumstances, not under any stretch of the definition. But he, he was a great and good person. I remember he told us in the sheer Sunday morning, he said, Kinderlach Gedenk. You remember that you lived, you know, that it happened while you were here. Of course, those were European Jews. European Jews had, a, had that kind of sensitivity. European Jews would have walked across Europe in the snow to have seen any sort of Jewish state. And so they understood the moment. They understood what was involved. But it was terrible fright. There was a rally that week in the Chicago Stadium. There were 20, 22,000 people in the stadium. There were 20,000 people outside the stadium. Uh, we had a neighbor on Douglas Boulevard in Chicago. His name was Papish. I used to play with his sons. I mean, he was a Jew. He had no shaykhist anything. He was a, a, a porter at the Palmer House Hotel in Chicago. He had no connection to Judaism whatsoever, except he was a Jew and he lived in the Jewish neighborhood. And uh, there was no Shabbos in the house. There was no Rosh Hashanah. There was no Yom Kippur. There was no Yom Kippur. He was nothing. But I remember that he went to the rally. And he came back and he told us about the rally and he wept and wept and wept. The mayor of Chicago, who was one of the, at that time, one of the minor angels in the world, on his way to uh, being uh, deposed and almost put into federal prison. So he was, uh, naturally, this was uh, an event so that all the politicians were there, all the vultures. And he got up to speak, and he was an Irishman, Edward J. Kelly was an Irishman, and he was a, uh, he was not, you know, the top drawer, and his voice broke, and he wept, because even he felt it was an historic moment. It was something, it was, it was something different. And the world didn't know how to treat it, and we didn't know how to treat it, and it, but, but it, but it was, uh, Again, it was an earthquake. The Egyptian army came north in two prongs, one towards Beersheba, and from Beersheba they wanted to go north to Jerusalem. The, uh, the Egyptians, as badly as they wanted that the Jews should be out of the country, they wanted almost as badly that King Abdullah of Jordan should be out of the country. I mean, this is the ace in the hole here, is that the Arabs didn't like each other either. And so, therefore, they were supposed to coordinate their efforts with uh, Abdullah, with the Arab Legion, 
and had they coordinated their efforts properly, there's no question that they could have achieved uh, they could have achieved success. The Egyptian army reached as far as five miles south of Jerusalem, Ramat Rachel. If you go there today, there's a kibbutz Ramat Rachel. They'll show you the trenches. It's within five miles of today. It's almost in Jerusalem because Jerusalem uh, has expanded and has swallowed up so many of its suburbs and outlying areas. When you go south on the road, the Ramat Rachel, that's where the Egyptian <laughs> army reached. That was their high water mark. Along the coast, the Egyptian army came up through the Gaza Strip and attacked towards Tel Aviv. If the Egyptian army would have achieved its two objectives, the capture of Tel Aviv and the capture of Jerusalem, the war would have been over. The Egyptian army was equipped to, to do it, and they had enough men to do it. The Egyptian army alone had 35,000 men in the field, and it had armored, and it had planes, and it had ammunition. But there's a few things it didn't have. First of all, one of the things that it did have is one of the most corrupt, perverted human beings in the history of the world as being its king, good old Farouk. Farouk weighed about 350 pounds, and he was uh, the world's greatest collector of pornography. And and he was guilty of the worst uh, acts of uh, pornography and uh, lewd behavior with children, with every, you name it. And he was so corrupt that, uh, that, that there, was no, uh, there was no way to imagine that corruption. And part of the corruption was naturally an arms dealing, so every third Egyptian rifle did not fire. Every other Egyptian bullet didn't really have powder in it. It helps to fight such an enemy. And uh, the war, the, this war would be the end of Farouk because it would reveal his ultimate corruption. It would reveal it in such a fashion that when uh, Nasser, who was a captain in the army, and Mohammed Nagib, who was a lieutenant colonel in the army, and who were defeated and surrounded by the Israelis and who saw how they were sold out by the Egyptian government when they came home, Farouk would no longer have power. They would, within a year, topple him and send him into exile in the French Riviera, get rid of him completely. And therefore, as many times uh, in history, his going to war, his going to war against Israel was a fatal mistake. The Egyptian army thought that they would win. They came to a kibbutz called Yad Mordechai. On their timetable, Yad Mordechai should have been taken in three hours. If you go to the kibbutz today, they still have the trenches and they have the models and they have everything exactly of the battle. The battle raged for days. The entire Egyptian army was held for days. And again, if you see the weapons that they fought with, the, uh, the uh, homemade uh, mortars, the Davidkas, uh, the noisemakers, it's like fighting literally with Purim groggers. And uh, they had mock soldiers made out of wood that they still have, and they show you, and they move them from trench to trench. So the Egyptians with, I mean, old tricks like that, And the Egyptian army, the vaunted Egyptian army, was held at bay. When they finally did capture uh, Yad Mordechai, they were days behind on their schedule, and their morale was badly shaken. 
the religious kibbutzim Negba, which was next held out, held out for a long, long period of time under intense bombardment. And the Egyptians never learned the secret that General Lee had uh, taught all military commanders, supposedly in the American Civil War, is that you go past the strong point, let it stand, go around it. That was MacArthur's genius in the Second World War, is that he never attacked the main islands, Truk, uh, the Bougainville, the, the, the islands where the Japanese really were. He went around it. He let them die on the vine. But the, uh, the Egyptian strategy was to take on every kibbutz one at a time. Eventually they would run out of steam. They would run out of the ability to do so. And their offense bogged down as, as May turned into June. Their offense bogged down. The Israelis, on the other hand, took heart, and they maneuvered a small Israeli force between the two main Egyptian forces. So you were in a strange, it's a strange war, because both sides surrounded each other. It depended how you, what your psychology was. Because the Israeli army was sandwiched between two Egyptian armies, and the Egyptian army attacking Jerusalem was sandwiched between two Israeli forces. But the Israelis convinced the Egyptians that the Egyptians were surrounded. That was called the Fallujah Pocket. And the Fallujah Pocket contained, among others, uh, Abdul Gamal Nasser. And he negotiated in the Fallujah Pocket with a man called Moshe Dayan. And the Egyptians saw that they ran out of gas. The Jordanians had been quite successful. They held on to the old city. The Jews were not able to break the grip of the Jordanians on the Jerusalem-Tel Aviv road. The battle at Latrun, the Jews attacked three or four times. If you go to Latrun today, the monastery with the police fort going up the hill, right where the road curves. So today the new superhighway has bypassed all of that. But the old road that ran before the new superhighway, you had to go right by it. And the Jordanians controlled the field of fire. The Jews could not win. They attacked once, and they were defeated by mosquitoes. There's such swarms of mosquitoes that the Jewish attackers could not get up the hill. They attacked another time, and they were cut down by Jordanian fire. They attacked a third time, and it was ill-planned, and they, they were climbing into the sun, and they couldn't see, and the Arab defenders could see. It was not a successful venture at all. And Latrun remained in the hands of the Jordanians, and the road remained cut. Jerusalem would have succumbed if it would not have been for the discovery of an ancient Roman road that ran south of the city and then turned west and then eventually would turn north again. And that was called the Burma Road, named after the famous Burma Road built in the Second World War. It was an indirect uh, monument, I feel, to General Wingate, the British general who helped train the Haganah and who also helped build the Burma Road during the Second World War, that the Jews called that road the Burma Road. A great deal of the Burma Road was built by Jews from Meyashorim in the dead of night at the risk of Arab snipers. Every night the road was dug, every night it was filled, and when it was finished it was not Interstate 80. It was a bumpy, 
uh, arduous road, but it was a road, and it was a road that could hold trucks, and the trucks began to come into Jerusalem, and effectively the siege of Jerusalem was lifted by the Burma Road. That road later became the Bet Shemesh Road. If you take it today, it goes to Bet Shemesh. It's the old road to Tel Aviv before the Six-Day War. It was widened and expanded and paved and uh, graded, and so the, the area around Jerusalem was therefore stalemated. The Jordanians were satisfied with it because the, King, Abdullah, King Abdullah was interested in occupying what is today called the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, and having East Jerusalem. And in his heart's heart, he was ready, not, if not to make peace, but to accommodate himself to the fact that he would have a Jewish state next door to him. The famous mission of Golda Meir, who uh, went to visit the king to try and negotiate peace. Again, an example of Israeli chutzpah, you don't send a woman, even Golda Meir, to negotiate peace with an Arab sheik, potentate, etc. He never got over that insult. But the Israelis were out to prove a socialist, egalitarian point, and therefore uh, they never got anywhere with him. But in his heart's heart, he was prepared. You see it from Glob's book. Uh, you see it generally in his entire policy. That's why he was assassinated, because the Arabs themselves felt that he was ready to accommodate uh, the state of Israel. In the north, on the Syrian frontier, the Syrians captured Mishmar Yardain, where Mr. Isaac himself was, and went into captivity in Damascus. We have somebody here in the room who, who can testify to that. And the Mishmar Yardain was the only kibbutz, aside from the Etzion kibbutzim, which the Jews never recaptured which remained in Syrian it remained in Syrian hands but the main thrust of the Syrian army into the Bet Shan together with the Iraqi army was stopped at the religious kibbutzim of Tiratzvi and Zdei Eliyahu in a long pitched battle in a very very hot climate the climate there is so hot that the work in the fields is done from 3 in the morning to 10 in the morning and in that uh, broiling heat uh, they were turned back the Syrian army attempted to capture the kibbutz the famous old kibbutz the oldest kibbutz in the country the Ganya if you go to the Ganya today you can still see the little Syrian tank the Renault tank sitting about 50 yards from the dining room that was the point of the farthest penetration somebody a um, kibbutz member ran out with a Molotov cocktail and destroyed the tank and that was as far as the Syrian army reached. There was shelling, there was constant fighting, but they never got anywhere past that. The Arabs were driven from Tiberias, the Arabs were driven from the city of Tzvas. Uh, the Arabs uh, thought that the Israelis had uh, the atomic bomb because uh, the Israelis, uh, the, the Arabs were encamped on the top of Har Knan which commands Tzvas, and there again, on top of Harkonnen, there's a crusader fortress, and there's a British police fortress, and it's an impregnable position. And, they were, and the Jews could not gain control of the road to Tzvas, nor of Tzvas itself, because of the Arab position. The Jews brought up the famous Davidka, 
that noisemaker, tremendously noisy mortar, which did not have much of a military effect, but had a great psychological effect. And one Friday afternoon, they shot it a few times with a tremendous roar, and then, miracle of miracles, it rained. It never rains in May and June in Israel. We find that in Tanakh, the Navi Shmuel said, when he crowned Shaul HaMelech, he said, I will perform a miracle for you. It is the time of the harvest of the wheat, and you'll see that it's going to be a, there's going to be a thunderstorm. And the people were impressed. The people saw it as a sign of God. So the Arabs saw that the Jews had the atomic bomb. That was the only thing that could make it rain. With that noise. And they fled. They fled. They left the impregnable positions on top of Harkonnen, and they abandoned them. When Jews captured Svas, they drove the Arabs out of the entire northern area of the Galil. The uh, Lebanese army uh, shot a few bullets and turned around and went home. Uh, Kakauji, the head of the Arab militia in the north, uh, was also defeated at a number of kibbutzim that he was unable to conquer. By the end of June, the Arabs had run out of steam. When the Arabs ran out of steam, then the Security Council of the United Nations did what it always does. It called for a ceasefire. And the Israel, as it always has been forced to, had to accept the ceasefire. Now, Israel needed the ceasefire as well, because it did not had, it had used up all of its ammunition. Uh, one, of, one of the things you have to realize is that the Israeli army, they brought people in from the refugee camps on Cyprus, and within six hours, eight hours, these people who came out of Hitler's Europe and then came out of being in the refugee camps on Cyprus were in the war. I think some of the most tragic, in, in, in a tragic world, uh, I, if you go in the, in the military cemeteries in Israel, where I have been a few times, you see a military cemetery, the name of somebody, it says, arrived in Israel uh, May 19th, 1948, was killed May 20th, 1948. He was in Israel one day. Got off the boat, brought into the war, and gone. Now that's how Israel had to fill its army. And they did not have weapons, and did not have effective weapons, modern weapons. So the ceasefire was a mutually agreed upon ceasefire. On the night before the ceasefire, it was supposed to take hold in July 1st, 1948, on the night before the ceasefire, the Irgun attempted to recapture the old city of Jerusalem, the Jewish quarter. They blew up the gate, Shar Zion Gate, and the 150 men got in, but they were cut down almost immediately when they got inside. They suffered a tremendous defeat, and the Arabs remained uh, impregnable in the old city as they would until 1967. The ceasefire was declared, and the United Nations appointed a peace mediator to come and mediate the, the uh, matter between the Israelis and the Arabs. The peace mediator was a Swedish count, Volker Bernadotte, a member of the Swedish royal family, who during the war had helped to save Jews from Hitler, as many others, Wallenberg and others of the Swedish royal family. But Bernadotte, when he came to Israel, was assassinated. 
He was assassinated by Jews. He was assassinated by members of the Stern Gang. His assassins never were caught, though there were many rumors that everybody knew who they were. But for whatever reason, the mediation therefore collapsed and because he was assassinated. And the ceasefire had 30 days to go, and both sides got ready for the second round. Israel here scored a coup, and the coup was because of our friends, the Russians. There was no place in the world for Israel to buy modern arms. There was no place in the world for Israel to rearm itself. They were under embargo in the United States and in Britain, in France, throughout the Western world. There was the only place to turn to was the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union allowed Israel for hard American dollars to buy arms from the Skoda Munition Works in Czechoslovakia, one of the largest uh, armament companies in the world. And the Jews bought, and the Jews scrounged. They got Messerschmitt planes, and they got old B-17s, and, and they put it together. And then for the first time, they had decent mortars and anti-tank guns, and they had... Uh, sufficient ammunition, all of this flowed in in the 30-day period. What also flowed in was the famous story of the Alta Lena, a ship that was hired by the Irgun to bring in weapons for the Irgun. And Ben-Gurion uh, refused to allow it. He said there will be no private armies. Everybody is the Israeli army, there will be no private armies. And he ordered that the ship be turned over. The ship was not turned over in time and the Israeli army itself shot on the ship, killed Jews, blew up the ship. In the irony of God's world, one of those that was killed on, the, on that ship was the one who was accused uh, 15 years earlier of assassinating uh, the uh, Zionist leader, Elazarov. Elazarov, and he was arrested by the British, and uh, many said that he was guilty but the British could not prove it, and he was released. He was killed by uh, Jewish bullets on that boat. And that effectively broke the independence of the Irgun. It almost brought the state to civil war within a month and a half of its inception. It's to the credit of Menachem Begin and the heads of the Irgun that they did not pursue it, that they buckled under and that they accepted the verdict. When the second round began, the Arabs thought they would win. Within two weeks, it was obvious that the Arabs were about to suffer a complete and total defeat. The Israeli army was on the offensive on all fronts. It captured Nazareth and the central Galilee. It pushed the Egyptians back to the Gaza Strip. The Egyptians were still surrounded in the Fallujah pocket. Uh, in the, uh, the Tiberias was cleared. The entire Betshan Valley was cleared. Uh, the Jews even now had the temerity to invade the Sinai for the first time. And Jews have been in the Sinai now three times already. And uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the dissolution of the entire Arab ring around Israel was apparent. The only Arab army that was not defeated was the Arab Legion of Jordan. And the uh, Arabs, therefore, sued for peace. On the last, uh, in November, the Israelis reached the southern Negev, and they took the, then the small village of Eilat, which later would develop into a port, 
and they were in the Sinai, and the uh, British sent a message to Ben-Gurion, he quotes it here in his memoirs, the message that he received from the British that if the Jews did not stop, Britain would intervene. Britain itself would intervene in the war and stop the Jews because Britain was afraid that Egypt would fall and Britain had a tremendous investment in Egypt because of the Suez Canal and because of other reasons. And therefore, they would have to stop. On the last day of the war, the uh, Jews shot down four British Spitfires piloted by British pilots over the Sinai. And uh, that goodbye present really ended the relationship I mean, it made clear the relationship. It would take a number of years before the uh, relationship between Israel and Britain would warm up again. And it was only in the uh, 1953, 1954, the people of England gave to the Israeli people that beautiful bronze menorah, which is outside the Knesset building, as a sign of the fact that, the man, that, that this rift was healed. But the Jews actually went to war with England at the end of the War of Independence. Yes, you wanted to ask something? Well, the Arabs who lived in Israel at that time had constantly been propagandized that the Arabs were going to win the war and that no Arab should remain within the boundaries of, uh, of where the Jews were because all the Jews would be annihilated and then after the Jews were annihilated they would be invited back and they could have the, their pick of homes and of loot and of wealth and this was the beginning of the Arab refugee problem where hundreds of thousands of Arabs fled now, some of them fled with Israeli encouragement but the basic encouragement was Arab encouragement the Arabs from Haifa, the Arabs from Jaffa, the Arabs from Ramla, the Arabs from Lud, the Arabs from all of these communities fled. And when they came amongst their fellow Arabs, uh, they were not treated as welcome guests at all, but they were assigned to uh, terrible conditions of living, which have been perpetuated until today. In the Arab refugee camps, uh, they became wards of the United Nations, which immediately jumped in and, uh, on a humanitarian basis, fed them and uh, attempted to make some order out of it and, uh, and set up this United Nations Relief Commission, which still exists until today. Uh, not one ration card has ever been turned back to the United Nations. No Arab has died since 1948. It is the world's greatest testimony to medical science. And therefore, when the, no one knows how many Arabs there are because, uh, because of the proliferation of cards and of registration. Arab, every Arab you meet you know, come, comes from Palestine, and he had a house in Tel Aviv that the Jews took from it. This myth really uh, began then and the Jews were unable to deal with it they were, they, they, in the, in, because they had so many other things to deal with that they were unable to deal with this myth of, how, uh, of, of what really happened. The United Nations appointed a mediator, a, a black American by the name of Dr. Ralph Bunch, who later would win the Nobel Prize. He had a home in Kew Gardens. 
and the uh, bunch uh, on the island of Rhodes negotiated armistice agreements between the Arabs, all of the individual Arab governments, and the state of Israel. The armistice agreements were meant to be preliminary to final peace agreements, and the Jews really felt that that was true. And they, the Jews felt that it was over. The Arabs, however, immediately became intransigent. They never lived up to the armistice agreements themselves. For instance, the armistice agreement with Jordan provided that Jews would have access to the holy places, to the Western Wall, would have access to burial places on Mount of Olives, etc. That was never honored, not from day one. And the armistice agreements, therefore, never had a chance to develop and become peace treaties, but they marked borders that were really uh, indefensible militarily, but at least it was a Jewish state, and the Jewish state had triumphed. I remember in the uh, 1948 Almanac, it said the upset of the year was the, that the Israelis defeated the Arabs. That was the upset of the year, greater than the usual sports upsets, which are uh, recorded for posterity in these almanacs. And that is how the state of Israel came into being. In fire and in flame and blood, the Jews lost over 6,000 dead, 1% of the population. If you'll translate that in American figures today, it's just too horrendous to, to think about it. You're talking about millions and millions of dead in the same ratio. But 1% of the population was dead, thousands were wounded, the economic dislocation, the problems of the country were enormous, but the country was here, that it survived, that it had begun. And that itself was the testament to that story, to that great story, which is uh, a focal point of Jewish history, certainly in our time. This concludes the lecture on the State of Israel by Rabbi Beryl Wine. For information, please contact the Destiny Foundation at 1-800-499-WINE. That's 1-800-499-9346. We can also be reached by email at info at jewishdestiny.com. Shop online at www.rabbiwine.com. Due to copyright laws, we kindly request that there be no duplication of this lecture.